If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, this is the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove, the magazine's deputy editor. And I'm Rob Attar, features editor. This is our June 2010 podcast, coming up this month. The private ownership of land needed to be abolished in order that the English people could be free. That was Edward Valance discussing a 17th century radical. And every now and then you hear an aeroplane go, ooh, bang, 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 bang. And they would come down and machine gun the firemen. That was a survivor of the Second World War Blitz reliving the experience. As outlaws, they were beyond the law, which meant that if they were caught, they could be executed immediately. That was Hugh Doherty on True Life Robin Hoods. So how old are the tunnels then? What do they date back to? The tunnels date back to 1797. That's when they were begun. Okay. And they were finished about 1810. And they were basically Napoleonic barracks for the garrison that was here at the time. And that was Dave Musgrove exploring the war tunnels under Dover Castle. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Our first interview is with historian and author Edward Valance. Edward specialises in the history of radical politics. He's written an article in our latest issue about Gerard Winstanley, who led the Digger movement in the 17th century. I caught up with him recently to find out more about this complex figure, whose experimental society is still celebrated today. Just to start off with, could you briefly tell us who Gerard Winstanley was and why we should be interested in him today? Gerald Winstanley was an English radical writer and activist, we can say, who emerged in England in the post-Civil War period. He started writing in 1648, early 1649, and his initial works were very much part of the sort of radical religious explosion of writing that occurred with the lapsing of censorship after the Civil War. But after 1649, his works take on a more obviously kind of political slant to them. And why Winstanley is significant is because of this political aspect to his work, and primarily because of the way in which he saw 
the ownership of land as being connected to political power and political oppression. And what Wynne Stanley argued in his pamphlets from early 1649 onwards was that the private ownership of land needed to be abolished in order that the English people could be free. And this is a doctrine which he put in practice himself in the two digger communes that were set up in Surrey in spring to summer of 1649, first at St. George's Hill and then Little Heath Cobham. So he's the first writer really, in English at least, who makes these connections between land, political power, private property and who then puts these sort of arguments into practice, if you like, in in creating these communal settlements. And he founded then the Digger Movement, which took place also around the same time. Yes, he's a leading digger writer. We now, largely thanks to um, the research of John Gurney, know a lot more about the other diggers, but it's still Wynne Stanley who's the best known of these figures and the leader of that movement. They're called the diggers for fairly obvious reasons, which is that they were digging up bits of common land in Surrey and cultivating that, planting crops upon it, so hence the name diggers. But they also called themselves the true levellers, and this was meant as a way of distinguishing themselves from the levellers, John Lilburn, William Wallin, Richard Overton, etc. And they wanted to distinguish themselves from the levellers for a number of reasons. First of all, around the time that the digger movement properly emerged, which was 1649, the levellers were very much being connected to mutinies within the New Model Army and to uh, attempts to use force to basically overthrow, if you like, the rump parliament. So they wanted to distance themselves from sort of attempts at insurrection, but they also wanted to stress the way in which they were true levellers. That is, they were looking to change the social structure of England, whereas people like Lilburn were very clear that they didn't want to attack private property in any way. So the diggers were clearly quite a radical group. Did they face much opposition at the time? They did, and they faced opposition from very different sections of the population. One thing that's often mistakenly thought about the diggers is that the settlements that they made in Surrey were being posed only by the gentry, the upper classes, if you like, in those areas. Actually, quite a lot of people of the same sort of social class as the diggers themselves, people from kind of the middling kind of ranks of society, were also opposed to the establishing of these communes on first St George's Hill and then Little Heath Cobham. And they were opposed to these settlements because the diggers' activities basically interfered with their own right to graze upon those pieces of common land. So it's not just the gentry who opposed the diggers. It was also other middling sort people. It was also members of the clergy as well who took objection to Winstanley's radical theology and his attacks upon professional clergy. So Winstanley was also being attacked as a blasphemer, as a heretic, aside from being attacked as a sort of social and political radical. And would I be right to say that the digger communes didn't end very well? Well, they ended in failure. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The digger communes were essentially over by 1650 through a combination of 
lobbying by these gentlemen, Surrey gentlemen, to the Council of State, which was then the executive body of the English government, and through assaults upon the diggers themselves upon these settlements. So by 1650, the settlements are really done and dusted in Surrey. We know very little about other settlements, digger-style settlements, in the rest of England. We do know that some other ones were created, but we don't know how long they were sustained, probably not for very long. So certainly by around 1650, these communal settlements had really been obliterated. And when Stanley and his supporters were forced to look elsewhere for work, Stanley eventually goes back to mainly being a writer rather than attempting to put his ideas into practice himself. One thing you hinted at earlier was that when Stanley's religion played a part in his political ideas, do you think there might have also been an impact of the times they were living in? For example, the Civil War had just finished. Do you think that might have had an effect on his views? The Civil War certainly did have an effect on Winstanley's views, and it's really very interconnected with his religious outlook. Winstanley is not exceptional in terms of being radicalised by the events that were going on in the late 1640s. His vision and the idea of these communes comes to him as part of a kind of ecstatic religious experience. It comes to him in a trance. This vision happens around the same time that Charles I is being put on trial and then executed. And it's those revolutionary events which are really kind of, if you like, opening up when Stanley's thought and leading him to see political as well as religious possibilities to, to these ideas. But they're also encouraging this millenarian expectation that the abolition of one form of monarchy is going to lead to the abolition of all earthly monarchy and the second coming of Christ as king. So these visions are intertwined, the religious and the political visions are intertwined, and the context of what's happening in the 1640s is very important in terms of radicalising with Stanley's own thoughts. Do you think there was any chance that what Stanley was trying to do could ever have succeeded, or were they just too far ahead of their time? Well, I don't know if it's even a question of being too far ahead of their time. I mean, I think I think there would be difficulties in terms of realising this sort of vision at any point in time, really, in the sense in which when Stanley was challenging not only important economic vested interests, but also, if you like, challenging the economic self-interest of people like himself. So it was always going to be very difficult. I think what's forgotten, though, is that when Stanley wasn't, if you like, completely a abnormality within the context of the time in which he was writing, he's actually trying to engage with a lot of other things that are going on at the time. For example, the scientific circle around Samuel Hartlib are also discussing, if you like, agricultural improvement in a way which was also connected to millenarian theology. So he's not completely exceptional. And even his last work, The Law of Freedom, where he sets out basically quite an elaborate utopian state for England, that was also connected to other kinds of political discussions about the form of constitutional settlement for England that were going on at the time. So he's not completely, as it were, out on a limb intellectually. But at the same time, the kinds of things he was proposing were going to be very difficult to achieve. And 
there's almost a sense in which when Stanley only believed that they were possible because he also had this belief in the imminence of the millennium coming and that was what was able to sustain his faith in this revolution. In later centuries, can we see other groups or organisations that were influenced by the diggers? It's less a case of influence, I think, immediately than a case of similar conclusions being drawn and similar kind of concerns being at the centre of it. Remember, it's quite hard to sort of trace obvious influence, certainly before the 19th century of Win Stanley's works on later political thinkers. And this is to do with access, actually, to Win Stanley's political writings. Now, those were preserved by, amongst other people, the bookseller George Thomason, but really they didn't attract all that much attention until we started to see publication, for example, of things like Bulstrode Whitlock's memorials um, going on to the 19th century, which laid out Win Stanley's discussions with Fairfax, uh, Thomas Fairfax, about the digger settlements. And those then get picked up. But in terms of the 18th century, it's not that people are necessarily reading Win Stanley. But what we find is that there are, for example, radicals like Thomas Spence who are making similar conclusions about the connections between ownership of land and political inequality in England. And again, those same sorts of connections made in the 19th century by the Chartists and the Chartists with their land plan. There's also similar elements here too in terms of an urban working class yearning for a kind of agrarian, rural retreat from the horrors of industrial life. I think there's even something of that in Win Stanley because we have to remember that Win Stanley began his sort of professional, his adult life as an urbanite, as a Londoner working in trade, not as a grazier, which is what he became in Cobham in Surrey. So he started out as an urbanite, didn't have a very happy time of it, and then came to Surrey and experienced this sort of spiritual and political awakening. So what we can see with Win Stanley in terms of later influence is more that the same sorts of themes get picked up on by later radicals like Spence and the Chartists. And then later on into the 19th century, anarchist writers and socialist writers do actually pick up on Win Stanley's own writings and see resonances there with things like the Russian peasant communes of the Mir, things like the ideas of the American Henry George and his ideas for a land tax. So 19th century, we certainly do see people picking up on Winston Stanley's ideas, recycling those ideas. Do you think nowadays that reading Winston Stanley's book might provide ideas to modern politicians and planners, perhaps? I think they have already. I mean, you can see, for example, ecological activists like George Monbiot picking up on Win Stanley's ideas, and they may not be the best fit necessarily for a developed, industrialised society like the UK, but actually some of these ideas about smallholding and communal ownership of land, communal farming of land, have proved successful in developing countries as ways of ameliorating the worst aspects of cash crop farming and the ecological as well as economic damage that that can do. So the kinds of things that Win Stanley was doing in practice have been shown to be successful in developing countries. Now, what we have to remember here is that the reasons, the rationale behind those small holdings are very different from those early modern English compared to those modern developing uh, contexts. So the ideas behind these small holdings may be different, but the practice actually is similar here. 
So there are lessons to be learned. So you think we should perhaps be celebrating him as something of a visionary today? Certainly we should be celebrating him as a visionary. What Win Stanley shows us is the exceptional lengths to which radicalism, radical thought, went in the 1640s and 1650s. And this really was unprecedented, what Win Stanley was saying and doing, making this connection between land, political power, um, private property. He's a visionary too in other ways, in terms of the way in which he combines spirituality, politics, and this language of the land, pastoral imagery, and language taken from the Bible. He's really an exceptional prose writer, and that's something that people are now picking up upon the beauty of his writing, as much as the novel aspects, the radical aspects of his political vision. That was Edward Valance. His Radical History of Britain was published by Little Brown last year. You can read his blog at edwardvalance.wordpress.com. And now, in our next spot, we have a selection of clips of Londoners who lived through the Blitz in the Second World War. These clips are taken from the Blitz display in the new Galleries of Modern London at the Museum of London, as featured in the news pages of the magazine. I hope you enjoy this slice of oral history. The funny thing is that I don't ever remember feeling frightened. Too busy. Oh, it's one night I do remember I was frightened. A friend who had a flat in London lent it to me, and we did have a very, very bad blitz in the night, and glass was flying out of windows, and I remember that I put on my fur coat, which I thought might be some protection, and stayed in the middle of the room where I hoped perhaps the flying glass wouldn't come. Yes, I was frightened that night. One evening, we didn't quite make the shelter, and I do recall that, and just sort of lying flat in the hallway because a bomb had fallen very close to the house. Everything shuddered, you know, glass. The whole house shook. There was quietness afterwards, except a trickle. You could hear, like, a trickle of water. I think my mother was making my father a cup of cocoa or something at the time. All the ceilings came down, the windows came in, the front door came in, all the doors. Oh. And I can remember rushing up those stairs trying to get to my parents. That was my first thought, to just get to them. I was in an air raid shelter with three soldiers and the rest of us civilians and the bombing got very, very bad and one or two people started screaming. And the soldiers jumped to their feet and said, now please, please, everybody, this is going to happen every night, you've got to get used to it. And they started singing when Irish eyes are smiling. And we all joined in and we applauded then. My vivid memory was my mother standing in the passageway with her chair all night long. So she knew she was near the door, that if the place got hit by a bomb or something, she had it in her mind that she could get out. Because the biggest worry in everybody's minds in those days was being buried alive. My parents suddenly came up and grabbed hold of me and put me behind them. So if you can imagine this very small child behind their parents looking through their legs. Outside was a number of ambulance men with sacks and they were picking up arms and feet and putting them in the sack. Uh, we were making the tea in court, there was an incendiary bomb came down, anything like it. And you could hear the screams, I'll hear it to me day and day. 
the process of thought was there's going to be a great war, there's going to be heavy air raids, London will be under attack, we'll do what we can to save London. I happened to be standing by the door one day, fire watching, and a bomb just fell down, hit the shop, and spur of the moment, didn't, fortunately it was an incendiary, and I just kicked it in the road. And the air raid warden gave me one shout and said, you silly fool, you could have blown your leg off, which was right, but you don't think, even my main thought was to get the bomb away from the, from the shop, otherwise I had visions of the shop going up. Down in the dock, you'd be fighting uh, in clusters because there were fires all around. You weren't fighting one fire, isolated fire, they were all around. There was a roar of the flames, there was the banging of the bombs, there was the noise of the anti-aircraft, and every now and again you'd hear an aeroplane go, ooh, bang, 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 bang. And they would come down and machine gun the firemen. And uh, you've no idea how much bad language that promoted. <laughs> and these clips are part of an oral history display at the Museum of London. Their new Galleries of Modern London opened at the end of May. The museum is free and you can find out more at museumoflondon.org.uk. Sticking with the Second World War, BBC History magazine editor Dave Musgrove took a trip to the Second World War tunnels beneath Dover Castle recently. There he talked to English heritage historian Paul Patterson about the role of the tunnels in the planning of the Dunkirk evacuations 70 years ago. The interview took place in the tunnels themselves, where the background noises are part of the experience. Where are we now, Paul? Uh, we're inside Casemate level uh, of the secret wartime tunnels, as we call them, at Dover Castle. OK, and in the background we can hear some 1940s-style music going Yeah, on, we, can, so. we can hear it going, yeah. Um, so uh, we're here because uh, it's coming up to the anniversary of the Dunkirk evacuations and this place played an important role in that event. So perhaps you could just give us a little bit of background about what was happening uh, 70 years ago here. OK, well, this level of tunnels, uh, there are three levels of tunnels here. Casemate level, which is the only one that was here in 1939, 1940. Mm. Uh, and they were reoccupied after a period of abandonment uh, in 1939 as an operations centre for a number of arms of the services. The one that we're concerned with today, obviously, is the Royal Navy, uh, and they reactivated the naval base that had been here in the First World War yep. and shortly afterwards so that uh, they could undertake operations in the Dover Straits against the German Navy. OK. So did, how old are the tunnels then? What, what do they date back to? The tunnels date back to 1797. That's when they were begun. Okay. And they were finished about 1810. And they were basically Napoleonic barracks okay. for the garrison that was here at the time. And of course this is all part of the bigger complex of Dover Castle, which goes back to medieval times. And, mm. uh, and longer, Roman times in indeed, fact. Indeed, indeed. Yes. So, so we're at a very historic site here. But talking specifically about the Second World War. Yeah. Um, so we've... We, in the, in the run-up to Dunkirk, we've yep. got the British Expeditionary Force over in France yep. in all manner of dire straits with the German advance smashing through sure. the low countries and putting, putting British forces into a really tricky predicament. And everyone ends up in the Dunkirk perimeter, in that quite large area around Dunkirk. Yep. And then we have to try and get them out. So what happens? What happens is that, well, you know, the, the German breakthrough... Uh, at Sudan and the drive to the coast the writing was on the wall at that time as to what was happening 
And it's then, in the earlier part of May, that Admiral Ramsey and his staff here are beginning to think about, well, you know, the impossible might happen. We might have to bring these guys back. So they began to plan, all right, it's improvised, last-minute planning, but they began to plan to getting, you know, a quarter of a million soldiers back from one or two ports uh, on the coast of France and, and Belgium. Yep. When they first started planning, there were several ports available, Boulogne, Calais, uh, Dunkirk, Dieppe. Yep. But by the time the, the perimeter is manned in mid-May, then only Dunkirk is available for okay. them to do. So they're, well, the, thing, the sort of things they're doing is that they're getting transport together, both Royal Navy transport and civilian transport. They're going to need troop ships to go over there of all kinds. They're potentially organising trains to take the troops away from the hotspot here in Dover when they come back. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mass planning and communications exercise that's going on here with a small core staff. And was, was Dover chosen as the control centre merely as a matter of geographical expediency because it's the most, you know, the biggest port and the closest port to, yeah. to Dunkirk? It, it's here because uh, Admiral Ramsey and his staff, or Vice Admiral Ramsey and his staff, are in control of the straits. That is their role right. to keep the straits clear okay. so that the, the shipping at, at, at his his control is responsible for all aspects of transport in the in the channel. Okay. Yeah. And of course it's you know the nearest the nearest point, as it were, to the other side. So it's a convenient place. Yeah. So how many people were involved in the in the planning and how many people have been beaving away in these tunnels trying to trying to sort out the logistics? Less than you might think to start with. Uh, uh, Admiral Ramsey's personal staff at the time you know it's is you can count 20 30 people right. but it expands during the operation yeah. because of the, the amount of work required so by the end of the operation you know we're talking about almost 100 people yeah. working in in casemate uh said right. casemate below us yeah. on the operation okay because when, when the operation started, or just before it, we didn't, the British didn't think they were going to get anywhere near the number of people no. that they did. The official estimates were 45,000. Yeah. And that was optimistic at the yeah. time. Yeah. And they brought back 338,000. Which is astonishing, isn't it? And part yeah. of the reason for that was because the, the Germans chose not to, to push the advantage. And that's been much debated as to why that happened. Yeah. But, but was part of it due to good planning? Was it because you know they managed to get all those well, ships across? Un- undoubtedly, it was due to a combination of factors. And you know the argument about the Germans not pushing the advantage. I, I you know, I don't, I don't think the Germans would not have pushed the advantage had they been able to. Right. Yeah. I think that was military circumstance which meant they didn't push the advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the stopping of the tanks. Uh, was something they simply had to do. Right. You know, operationally, they needed time to refuel, regroup, and all the rest of it. Let the infantry catch up. Yeah. It's all those things. Because one of the things that people don't realise is that you know, although the the German Blitzkrieg, as it's called, uh, you know, was quite dynamic, a lot of the German army was not mechanised at the time. Mm. So although there were some frontline units that were highly mechanised and highly efficient, they had to wait for the rest of the army to catch up. Yeah. The advance, in fact, was too rapid for them to press the advantage. Yeah. 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 So, so that's that one. Yeah. So what was um, on the planning front? How yeah. how good was the planning from Ramsey and his, and his men? Here? I think you could call it extemporisation. It right. was uh, cobbled together very very quickly, mm-hmm. but very efficiently. In fact, yeah. uh, one, one of the great problems they had was communications, uh, establishing efficient communications between the operations centre here 
and the Dunkirk beaches and harbour was actually, in, in the early stages of the operation, very difficult. You know, we're talking about one telephone line and a very intermittent wireless telegraphy right. between here and whatever destroyers were, were, were berthing over there. Yeah. And it was very intermittent. And the communication between what Ramsey was able to do and what his staff on the other side were telling him was possible yeah. often broke down in the first few, the first few days. In fact, it's only four or five days into the operation that they got reliable communications. Right. Yeah. Right. So it relied upon uh, a lot of very, very capable men and women yeah. here and over there to take initiative at the time yeah. and to plan and extemporise locally. Yeah. So although we say about, you know, it's a great piece of operation, a great, a great piece of planning, there was a lot of improvisation that went on at the same time. Right. They were very capable people, and they were they were capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah? It wasn't as if it, it's not like the D-Day operation, which was planned right down to the last, yeah. you know, the last idea. It yeah. was something they had to do very quickly, and they did it very well. Does Does Ramsey deserve to be sort of fated as one of the great heroes of the Second World War for, for, for managing to get so many people out? Uh, undoubtedly, yeah. undoubtedly. And when you look at his subsequent career, uh, you know, the landings in North Africa, the landings in Sicily. Supreme Naval Allied Commander for the D-Day landings. He planned them all. Yeah. Definitely does deserve to be among the heroes. But he wasn't the kind of person, you know, unlike Churchill and Eisenhower and, and Montgomery, who courted the press at all. He quietly got on with it. And of course, he was killed in January '45 before the end of the war. Yeah. Yeah. He certainly was, you know, a remarkable individual. Yeah. There, there. So, what can we see here today to, to, to enable us to get an idea of what happened? Back okay. What's, well, what's on view? Okay, we're going, to, we're going to take you through Casemate Level, mm. uh, which was the uh, the operations centre uh, where Admiral Ramsey had his staff. It was also the operational centre for the coast artillery at the time, for the anti-aircraft artillery at the time. And we'll take you through a series of spaces. Some of them empty, some of them peopled, dressed spaces. Yep. It'll yep. give you an impression of you know, what it was like to be here in the Second World War. Not exclusively to uh, 1940, because some of the material that we have is later than that, but you'll get an impression of what you know, an operational centre was like during the Second World War. Yeah. Okay. And does the centre have a role beyond, uh, beyond Dunkirk? Was it important in the Battle of Britain after that? It, it was, obviously, Dun- uh, after Dunkirk, Dover becomes the front line, effectively. So there is a massive expansion in uh, the number of troops that are stationed in Dover and along the coast. Uh, massive expansion in coast artillery and anti-aircraft artillery. Yeah. And all that is controlled from command headquarters here mm. in, in, in these tunnels. So you've got, not only have you got the, the, the naval headquarters here, but you've got the, the local headquarters of anti-aircraft command yeah. uh, controlling all the guns in the area. Yeah. Uh, and you've got a huge expansion in coast artillery from seven gun batteries protecting Dover Harbour yeah. in 1940 to over 30 by 1942. Right. Yeah? Okay. So you get command centres for, for, for those important aspects of coastal defence centralised here. Yeah. And then what happens next is that uh, in '41 they take the decision that Dover is going to be used uh, as a combined headquarters for all three services for the invasion, the reinvasion of Europe when it happens. And so they make plans for that and they construct two new levels of tunnels, one called Annex one called Dumpy, where the, the, the sort of whole operation for the invasion of Europe is going to happen. Yeah. 
As it turned out, it, it didn't happen that way because they decided not to launch it in the Nord Pas de Calais, yeah. but to do it in Normandy. So Portsmouth becomes the combined headquarters. But all the infrastructure was built and established here and is still here uh, for us to see. And there were some parts of the deception operations for D-Day which were coordinated from here. So there were special signals units, for instance, stationed here. And they were sending out thousands of fake messages, of fake traffic, as part of the whole you know, attempt to fool the Germans as to where the invasion was actually going to come. Because there was so this dramatic deceit, wasn't there, in June 1944 as to where yeah. the landings were going to be. Absolutely, and even after, the, even after the landings, the Germans were still thinking the main landing is going to come somewhere else. Yeah. So the deception was actually really quite brilliantly organised. Yeah. And some of it was done from here. Yeah. So it has a role right through, you know, until 44, 45. Yeah. Just one last question. So, what, so we get these, was it 338,000 men? 338,000 men. Which is an astonishing number, isn't it? Yeah. Did they all come back through Dover? And what happened to them? Most of them came back through Dover, but there were, there were other ports which were designated as ports of, um, of bringing them back. So there's Margate, there's Ramsgate, there's Folkestone, for yeah. instance, as well. But the vast majority came back into Dover, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, of course, what they had to do, because they were expecting attack and invasion imminently, yeah. So to have so many men in one place was not a good idea. Yeah. So they'd organised hundreds of special trains and they were st- the troops were sent all over the country, not in their units. Just as they arrived, they were dispersed to military camps and hospitals all over England, actually, to get them away from the front line, potentially. But also because you know a lot of them needed medical treatment as well. They got emergency medical treatment here and then they were dispatched to proper hospitals for, for convalescence. So it was a massive operation, really. The Dover War Tunnels are open to the public as part of Dover Castle, which is an English heritage property. And now for our final interview. The latest retelling of the story of Robin Hood, The Outlaw, opened in May. Director Sir Ridley Scott's film Robin Hood, with Kate Blanchett and Russell Crowe, is a rousing and gritty blockbuster version of the ever-popular legend. In that legend, Robin Hood was, of course, an outlaw who was forced to hide in the forest beyond the reach of the law. But what did it really mean to be an outlaw? We decided to ask an expert to give us the historical context to all of this. And so, earlier, I spoke to Dr Hugh Doherty, who told me about some real-life medieval outlaws. Now, Hugh, perhaps you could start by telling us what it meant to be an outlaw. How did someone become an outlaw, and what did that actually mean for them? Men and women were made into outlaws by being declared outlaws in the Shire Court. The Shire Courts were the only venue where men and women charged with certain offences could be declared outlaws. Um, Customs seemed to vary across different shires, uh, but largely men and women were required to be summoned on three or four different occasions and on the third or fourth occasion if they hadn't turned up to answer the charges they were declared to be outlaws as outlaws they were beyond the law which meant that the wolf's head was on them that if they were caught after being declared outlaws they could be executed immediately we know this because uh, entries on the pipe roll from the early 13th century, on the pipe rolls in the early 13th century, uh, there are accounts for the um, chattels of executed outlaws who have been caught by the sheriff 
and his knights uh, and em- executed immediately. So there was a very immediate danger for outlaws uh, that in being de- caught with outlawry declared against them. They could have, outlaws would, being outlawed, wouldn't necessarily leave the kingdom. That was the idea. But um, a great deal of evidence and a thorough search of that evidence shows that outlaws tended to take sanctuary, tended to hide out, uh, exist, not only in um, the edges of society, forests, moorlands, hills, but also in neighboring villages, towns, boroughs. So they can exist both in these towns and on the margins. Um, There's a very nice saint's life in which a knight uh, who is hiding out from the king's justices uh, meets a hermit in a forest uh, and underlines for us the extent to which these um, forests could be quite crowded places full of not only of um, outlaws but also hermits interacting. I see. So what happened to their um, property uh, when they were outlawed? Um, the uh, property would become the property of the kings uh, and would immediately um, enter the, the custody of the sheriff. Their chattels would usually be sold. And again, we know this because their chattels are being sold and the money from the sale is accounted for by the sheriff or the king's justices. I see. And what sort of period in history are we talking about? Um, sentence of outlawry is one uh, used and deployed by the kings of the English from at least the um, 10th century for the 11th, 12th, 13th and onwards. Um, it, has a, it has a wide ap- application, but is used intensively, as uh, my article hopefully demonstrates, um, by the Angevin kings of the English. That is, those kings, uh, the three kings, uh, Henry II, his son Richard I, and his, sec- others, his youngest son, John, who reigned between 1154 and 1216. Now let's turn now to some real-life outlaws. Um, One that you mentioned in the feature that you've written for our magazine is Robert Fitzwalter. Tell us about him. What happened to him and why was he declared an outlaw? Robert Fitzwalter and um, his colleague in arms, Eustace Deveshi, and their followers and knights and clerical members of their their household are outlawed in August 12... uh, in January... 1213 for their suspected part in an attempt on the king's life in August 1212. Uh, King John was organizing a campaign against the ruler of North Wales and is summoning troops to, uh, to Nottingham and to meet him at Chester. At Nottingham on about around 16th of August 1212, he's informed, gets wind of, an, a plan either to kill him or to hand him over to his Welsh enemies. We don't know how many great men, how many earls and barons and knights um, were party to this attempt on the king's life, this plot against the king. But what we do know is that John suspected both Robert Fitzwalter and Eustace de Vesci of being party to that plot. And the most, the most vivid testimony of their guilt is the fact that they both flee 
with members of their households. Um, Robert flees to France and Eustace to the Kingdom of Scots. We know very little about the plot. Um, what we do know is the, uh, is the guilt of these two great men. And King John pushes through the Shire courts where these men will have held property, Robert Fitzwater holding property in Essex and Herefordshire, and Eustace Vesci in Northumberland and Yorkshire, and in the Shire courts uh, of these counties, these men are outlawed after being summoned on three, four occasions. Uh, until January 1213, they're finally outlawed and only restored as part of King John's deal with Pope Innocent III in May 1213 that ends the interdict against the kingdom. Now, another outlaw that you talk about in your feature is Fulker Fitzwarren, who was outlawed in 1201, and it's possible to trace his career through various historical documents of the time. But interestingly, his adventures also inspired a later prose romance which dramatised his story somewhat. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's a very interesting romance, um, full of very precise local detail combined with heroic fantastical adventures, capturing kings, fighting dragons, rescuing damsels, seizing gold. The romance survives as a um, prose romance in Anglo-Norman French from about 1330. Um, but it drew upon a 30, late 13th century poem. Um, verses of this poem are cited in the prose romance of 1330, specifically in two great prophecies, two, in, two very interesting prophecies put in the words of Merlin, mouth of Merlin, um, in which Merlin prophesies that the uh, Fulk, as the wolf, the loop, will um, chase, uh, chase and pursue the leopard, uh, a reference almost certainly to King John. And these two prophecies have been lifted by the 1330 adapter from the late 13th century poem. What's also interesting is that um, there survived also a Middle English alliterative poem, now lost, but that was seen in the 16th century. And extracts from this English um, version were made by the 16th century antiquary John Leland. And this, this English version that he saw, that he transcribed from, was incomplete. And John Leland supplies the ending, not from the 1330 prose romance, but from the late 13th century poem. So he too clearly had access to this 13th century poem. And the, survi the survival and circulation of the late 13th century poem of the 1330 prose romance and of the Middle English alliterative poem uh, underlines the uh, success and appeal of this romance that tells the adventures of folk during his outlawry, his sail around the western worlds and islands, his meeting with dragons and uh, damsels and great kings, uh, Moorish as well as Christian, uh, but, but also provides us with a uh, late 13th century memory of the Norman conquest of 
city of Herefordshire, Shropshire, and parts of Wales. And for all those reasons, the romance is very, very interesting. That sounds fascinating. And clearly, um, the the, uh, the whole idea of, of out, outlaws was um, was thought to be, you know, something with great appeal. People like to hear about them, um, just as we just as we do now with the Robin Hood uh, myths. Um, so finally, when um, does outlawry continue for the rest of the Middle Ages? Uh, yes, very much so. In two different, one can say in two different ways. Firstly, as um, as the context for a genre of uh, literature, uh, there are a large number of romances, poems, ballads, plays celebrating the actions and deeds and adventures of outlaws throughout the medieval period and into the early modern period. Uh, outlaws have great appeal for uh, authors of these kinds of literary works. Secondly, outlawry continues as a tool, sometimes an effective tool, sometimes a remarkably ineffective tool against criminals, bandits, thugs, uh, men who inhabit uh, the, the great forests, who prey upon the king's highways, and who generally cause trouble. Uh, one of the most interesting examples of such a gang that come very close, to some extent, to the, the Robin, Robin Hood uh, legend is the Folville gang in the 14th century, led by Eustace de Folville, uh, a very interesting figure who, with a large number of knights, is, uh, um, makes two, two concerted and successful attempts against king's officials, uh, is engaged in all sorts of uh, local warfare in the Midlands and is a cause of great concern to successive kings at a very unstable moment in the history of the English polity uh, with the uh, imprisonment and murder of Edward II, the subsequent regime of his queen, and Mortimer, and then the succession of Edward III. And you just, the Folville, uh, his career and the career of, of his gang is played out against that wider political context. And to some extent, that wider political context provides an opportunity for Eustace de Folville and his, um, his friends and colleagues in crime. <laughs> Hugh is British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow in Medieval History at Jesus College, University of Oxford. His feature about outlaws is in the June issue of BBC History magazine. BBC History magazine is published each month in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or you can take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine or on our website, which is bbchistorymagazine.com. That's it for our June 2010 podcast. Look out for another BBC History Magazine podcast next month. <laughs>